Welcome to the Open Div Summit, a four-day pod conference around spirituality and meaning-making in the modern world. Each day, February 25th to 28th, we'll be releasing 10 to 20 pre-recorded conversations with top academics, theologians, clergy, and secular community leaders. In addition, each day we're hosting several live, interactive events on Zoom. We'd love to see you there. For more, check out summit.opendiv.org. Today's conversation is with Daniel Preifogel. Daniel is a monk and marketer, a theologian, and an entrepreneur. Daniel works in the in-between and is a co-founder and CEO of Sempara, a multi-faith interspiritual community that engages in sacred civic placemaking. He's also the founder of the consultancy Signal Hill, which helps organizations lead through story. Hope you enjoy our conversation today. Daniel, thanks so much for being here today. We've had one or two conversations in the past. Yeah. I'm a big fan of your work. Maybe for folks who are less familiar, can you just start by telling me a little bit more about Sempara, what you all are doing, and how it came to be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start with what we're doing today. Sempara is engaged in sacred civic placemaking across the United States. And we pursue our work in three areas through education, consulting, and placemaking. Education is about teaching leaders how to identify assets and leverage those assets. When we think of assets, we, we of course, think of uh, physical assets, religious buildings, the buildings and facilities of religious institutions that are generally underutilized. Uh, But we also think of assets in terms of financial assets, social and cultural assets, all of the capital that can be leveraged uh, to create more just, inclusive, and sustainable communities. So that's our work. Um, How we got here is, is really interesting. We, a group of friends 17 years ago, formed a covenantal community, a community of practice. There were four of us, and we were each discerning in our own lives a, um, a sense of calling that didn't, didn't really match up with the two options that our denomination offered us. We could be pastors or chaplains, uh, no dissing those two vocations, but we were, we were itching for something else, and we realized we were going to have to figure this out on our own. So we needed traveling companions. And that's actually, um, that's actually the origin of the word simpara. It's a, it comes from a longer word, simpara lambano, which in Christian scriptures means to take along with, as the Apostle Paul took along friends with him on his missionary journeys. So uh, we shorten it to simpara. That's our shorthand for traveling companions. So we formed this covenantal community. We adopted a very, a very common rule that included uh, practices of daily prayer, uh, daily reading of a, of a common reading, and an annual retreat among a couple of other practices. And that has been a lifeline for me and for my friends for, for 17 years. Some folks, uh, new folks came into our community over those years, some left. We've always been small. And we've always uh, had in front of us the question, is there something more we should be doing or that we desire to do beyond being a support group for each other? And our answer to that question was always yes, uh, but we weren't quite sure what form that would take. And so we had a long uh, discernment over many years until about a year and a half ago, we landed on this idea of repurposing religious assets for the common good. We were noticing the need First off, we were noticing that thousands of congregations are closing each year in North America, and thousands and many, many thousands more struggle to survive 
with underutilized uh, spaces and excess land that, that we think can be leveraged to address a variety of social issues in the communities in which these religious communities are, are located. So a year and a half ago, we set about this work and that's what we're engaged in today. So we talk about Sampara probably in like two ways. We are on one level, a multi-faith, inter-spiritual community that encourages and holds each other accountable through these common practices. And our members are spread out across the country. And we are a, an educator, a facilitator, and a placemaker doing this sacred civic placemaking with congregations and other religious institutions around the country. Cool. There's so much to dive into there. <laughs> In a bit, I want to maybe go a little bit more into kind of the covenantal community of Sampara and hearing a bit more about how that kind of led to, to the current manifestation of Sampara and that journey. Mm-hmm. But yeah. first, I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about what is the actual process like of working with these institutions to try and repurpose some of these assets? Because I imagine it's, uh, it's got to be a challenging conversation. There's, I imagine there's a lot of emotion like, well, oh, yeah. congregations yep. that are, are looking kind of this end in, in the face. Yeah, definitely a challenging conversation. And as you well note, a lot of emotion involved in that. The groups that we have uh, begun to work with in the last year, I think are at a point in the journey, the journey of their community, where they're, they're recognizing a couple of things. One, that their relationship with the wider community is not as strong as it could be. That if they could strengthen that relationship, they could, the church or mosque or synagogue could live even deeper into their convictions, their beliefs, their values around social justice, inclusion, sustainability, etc. And then they look around and they see that they have assets that are underutilized. Uh, first and foremost is the physical assets. You know, for, for a worshiping community, they might use their facility, you know, less than 15 or 20 percent a week. I think some studies show that number to be even, to be even smaller. So most of the facility goes unused. For congregations that also sit on larger properties, there's excess land. And that land could sustain a variety of uses that are congruent with the mission of the religious community and its desire to be more connected with the wider community. There are also financial assets, and as I mentioned earlier, social assets and cultural assets that can be leveraged for the common good. So we tend to uh, engage congregations that are already, already have that kind of awareness but need some assistance in figuring out, okay, how do we do this? What are the options? What are the models? Uh, an important part of our work that's emerged just in recent months is taking congregations on tours of other uh, congregations that have done very creative things with the use of their, their space and other assets. Yeah. And so we will bring you know, a small group of lay people and clergy into conversations with the principal leaders of those other institutions. And the conversations are always inspiring and instructive. The congregations that we're working with benefit from the lessons learned by those folks who've done some creative things, whether that means building affordable housing on their, uh, on their campuses 
or creating mental health or social service programs or some kind of mixed-use development that combines housing, childcare, other kinds of wraparound services. That said, there's still the emotional challenge even for those groups that are further along in that journey. Part of it is, uh, is the fear around how is this all going to get done? You know, if we embark on a major redevelopment of our campus, who's going to do all this work? That question is asked by both clergy and lay people. Uh, clergy look at what's already on their plate and their own skill set and say, don't expect us to do this. Uh, and, and the laity similarly look around and say, gosh, we're, we have full lives already. Uh, I, I'm not sure we can do this. And our answer to that is partnership, that the energy will come from other sources. And there are partners who stand ready to bring their expertise, uh, their sophistication in development and financing to faith communities. So part of our, another part of our work over this, uh, this past year and a half is building relationships with nonprofit developers and other partners who can help to catalyze imagination and action on repurposing of religious assets. Right, right. And you mentioned a couple of those specific kind of, I guess, maybe partner organizations or partner, uh, maybe archetypal projects like affordable housing, mental health. Are there any kind of maybe specific examples you can raise up as like, here's, you know, an example of a project that went really well, or these are kind of the folks, the types of kind of organizations that we point curious church leaders to or senior leaders to as they're exploring this kind of thing? Yeah, definitely. One of the models that's really excited us is a, uh, is a church in Alexandria, Virginia called Church of the Resurrection, an Episcopal congregation. And they went through a long process of discerning their future. There was, uh, among, the, uh, among the options they were considering was, cl- was closing down. Right. Like congregations across the country, they were seeing a declining membership. Declining membership meant to declining finances to sustain the ministry. And they just weren't sure whether they had the energy to go forward. But through their discernment process, they got clear on, we want to continue to be a community. And uh, probably most importantly, here's the kind of community we want to be. And here's what we want to do with our neighborhood. And their decision was to build affordable housing, uh, multifamily affordable housing. And that process itself took a long time, but they are nearing the end of that. You know, they entered into a relationship partnership with a nonprofit uh, developer. That developer had that kind of sophistication that I, that I mentioned and was able to arrange for the financing of the development. Within the project, the church kind of right-sized itself in terms of what does it need for its own space. It recognized it didn't need the whole property so it was going to build affordable housing on a majority of the property and then retain uh, a smaller parcel for a new sanctuary. And so when this community opens, which I think will happen fairly soon, they're going to have this vibrant ministry of affordable housing, which is so needed in that region in, in Northern Virginia, right outside uh, D.C., and they will have a new space for the worshiping community. And I think a new lease on life in terms of, of a congregation that has 
recaptured or reimagined its vision for the neighborhood. So that's one model that we we've started pointing people toward. And there are others. I could talk about I could talk about others. You know, that's a housing project. There's another in Fort Collins, Colorado, a part of the Rockies a Christian Church, a disciples congregation that is exploring a concept of creating a village that will have housing, affordable housing, home ownership opportunities for first-time home buyers, mm. uh, and then support services, uh, residential support services for the developmentally disabled. And all of that kind of knit together as a uh, community. And there they're working with multiple partners to bring that about. So lots of possibilities. Social enterprise, creating creating co-working spaces or incubator or accelerator space for social enterprises is, uh, is another option that we're uh, pointing people toward. There's a wonderful United Methodist Church in um, Dallas uh, called White Rock hmm. that has, do you know White Rock? I don't actually know. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Great, great uh, community and wonderful creative leadership there that has reinvigorated that congregation as it's repurposed its property for the benefit of the wider community through a co-working space, through affordable childcare, event space. They ended up acquiring a, a second congregation in another neighborhood in Dallas where they're creating a community farm, event space, um, and working in both settings, working very closely with their neighbors to design this. So it's a uh, it's that idea of designing with rather than for. Right. And I think that's key, actually, to the success of all of these models. For Sampara, you know, since it's been a year and a half since we've been engaged in this work, right now, it's, um, I mentioned those three categories of our work, education, consulting, and placemaking. Most of the work is in the first two categories, education and consulting. But at some point, the placemaking work will begin in very concrete ways in terms of building or remodeling existing space for the benefit of the wider community. Those kinds of projects take a lot longer. You know, uh, the development of a housing community, for instance, could be a minimum of three years, if, if not four or five or six years. Right. So it, it is a definite journey that, uh, that a community has to consider well before it embarks upon. But very exciting. There's, you know, there's stuff like this is popping up all around the United States, Canada, some experimentation happening in the UK. And so we're learning about other models all the time. And the models are not just in terms of use, but also on the finance side. How do these projects get funded? Are there revenue generating ventures that help to bring these things about? Is it uh, impact investing that helps to catalyze reuse and redevelopment. So we're tracking those kinds of financing models as well. Right. Well, I'm curious, because it sounds like from that first model you mentioned, that the church really found a way to create this new affordable housing and, you know, as you said, right-size congregational yeah. space. I'm curious, in a lot of these models, is it typically, are they typically kind of going to continue on symbiotically with these new ventures that they're starting? Or yeah. Cases where they're kind of like folding doors and really trying to um, find like the next, you know, best homeowner for the space, if you will, for the next kind of, yeah, spiritual owner. Uh, it ranges, you know, between those options that you've laid out there. But most of what we're seeing or most, most of the examples that really inspire me and my colleagues are those ones where the congregation 
gains uh, this kind of newfound sense of mission and uh, joins itself to the work of their partners on that on that space. That doesn't always mean that the members of that congregation are going to roll up their sleeves and you know contribute to the work of that new entity, whatever it is that's operating on their space. In some cases, it is enough, uh, we've learned, just to have a ministry of space or a ministry of place. Uh, there's, we learned this language from a church in Walnut Creek, California, that built transitional housing for people coming out of homelessness on their campus. And there was a question in their discernment whether doing this project meant that there was an expectation that the congregation would dive deeply into this work of working with the homeless. The conclusion that they reached was that might be the calling for some members. Some members may have great passion for that and a desire to uh, give of their time and talents to that ministry. But as a, as a church, as a, as a whole, it is enough, it is significant just to engage in this ministry of place, to, to share their land and facilities, to invite others to do their work in this common space. Yeah, so I think that's, uh, that's instructive to see. Uh, so there's going to be variations to your question about yeah. how, how congregations get involved. And I'll tell you one other story that I think is really interesting. Another Virginia church, it decided also to build affordable housing. And in this case, decided to tear down the, uh, the church to do this. Wow. And in the multi-story housing community on the first floor, there's flexible community space. So that becomes space for the worshiping community on Sundays or whenever else they gather. Uh, But it's also space that the residents of that community as well as neighbors can use. And so that is, um, that takes a lot of imagination and a lot of courage to let go of the old structure to work through all that emotional stuff that you mentioned and to say we can be together in a new way and to trust that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it almost sounds in some ways like the process maybe that you or that these churches are engaging in or maybe you're helping them navigate is almost like a vocational discernment process for the church itself to kind of try. And, oh, you know. totally. Yeah, totally. That's, uh, that's a key part of our work uh, is discernment. Uh, helping a, a church or uh, other religious community get clear about its uh, its why, its identity, its relationship to the wider community, to the neighborhood, and then the nexus between its vision and values and the use of their assets, uh, physical assets, um, uh, most particularly. That type of discernment is uh, deep uh, soul work, as one of my friends calls it, and and so it requires time, patience. Uh, listening at a, at a you know at another kind of frequency to each other, right. and paying attention to desire, paying attention to the energy of a group and the energy that is outside the religious community that is, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a resource for for the community. So all of that comes into play in our discernment work. One question that I ask often of groups that we're working with is, "What do you want to say yes to?" And so when we're exploring models, creative models of repurposing, I'll ask them, what in this model evokes a yes in you? 
you know, whether that's a kind of subtle, mm, yeah, that's good. Or, a, you know, like Walt Whitman's barbaric yacht. Yeah, I want to do that. And we listen then to each other in that way. So we're not only doing kind of research, we're turning back toward each other in the midst of that and saying, what do you think? How does that feel? How does that sit with you? That's all part of the discernment process. But that, yeah, thank you for asking about that because that's a key part of our work. I've been doing that kind of discernment work with congregations and organizations for about 20 years uh, using narrative-based practices to help people reflect upon um, their stories of community, uh, stories of when they've been at their best or most successful or most faithful, and then imagining a new future that flows from their lived experience. And so I'm, I'm, I bring that kind of same type of narrative-based practice into this new work with, uh, with Sampara. Right, right. You know, I'm curious. I know a lot of the folks that I've talked to who are also trying to create new types of communities that are maybe either falling between the lines of what a traditional religious institution or spiritual institution looks like or are maybe not explicitly spiritual but are still kind of experimenting with this type of meaning-making I know a lot of them are also trying to discern their calling and really kind of distill what it is they're, they're being called towards or moving towards. And I'm curious, are there any kind of exercises or if there, you know, any kind of recommendations you might have from that work of, of something that might be worth sitting with, like along the lines of the, the question of where is the yes here? Yeah, yeah. So in addition to that question, I use a practice called appreciative inquiry, where the basic question is, what's working around here? It's similar to um, what do you want to say yes to, in that it's connecting us to energy, to passion. And that, for me, and what I observe in others, is can be very clarifying about vocation. We, we know that famous quote by the mythologist Joseph Campbell, who said, follow your bliss. So bliss, Frederick Buechner talks about deep gladness. I think the question of yes, what's working, uh, where's the energy here, all kind of relate to that and help to clarify a sense of vocation. I think it's also important, again, back to this thing of partners, um, to notice what's already heading in the direction that you want to go. Whenever I work with leaders in general or entrepreneurs in particular, I will often ask them to consider what's already heading in the direction that you want to go. And then when you figure that out, practice the art of the piggyback. Whatever that thing is, another entity, another group, another effort, initiative that's heading in the direction that you want to go, let it carry you. Let it, you know, trust its energy. And that, just that experience, taking that journey of piggybacking is clarifying as well. I don't think that we answer this question just once, the question of vocation. So we need practices that help us continue to engage that question, to keep asking, what do we want to say yes to? What are we noticing? What's already moving in the direction that we want to go? And then take the risk to, to take that next step toward whatever's clear so far. So you can imagine when I'm doing a discernment process with the congregation, we're coming together multiple times as small groups, large groups, and then I will, I will always build into the process a small discernment committee 
that is working with me to design the process, to facilitate the process. I kind of use a train-the-trainer approach where I'm teaching them these practices of appreciative inquiry and piggybacking and, and, and other practices. So lots of times of being together and reflecting on what are we feeling, what are we noticing, what's getting clear. And toward that last question, what's getting clear, I will invoke a question that's been attributed to the poet T.S. Eliot. What has become clear to you since last we spoke? This was a question that Eliot reportedly would ask friends after a, a time apart. What has become clear to you since last we spoke? I love that. Yeah, yeah, I love the question too. So, you know, the question assumes that things are moving. Things are moving internally and outside of us. And that flow is always an invitation to us to ask the question, what's getting clear in all of this? So I hope that answers your question about ways in which groups and individuals uh, who are looking for that kind of vocational clarity might, ways that, that they might practice. Yeah, for sure. And I think maybe this is a good transition to maybe talk a little bit more about Sampara, the covenantal community that kind of held you and your friends and this community as you move towards this, you know, 17 years later. Uh, yeah, yeah. Your segue there uh, is your own sense of how important this vocational question uh, has been to the spiritual community of Simpar. I mean, that's why, that's why we came together. These four friends, uh, myself included, we, we wanted to do something in the world for the good of the world. And when you're not sure what form that's going to take, that can be really, really hard yeah. and a very lonely journey if you don't have others in it with you. For us, it felt particularly lonely in that we just sensed that we were strange birds because we didn't fit in the, in the categories uh, of our religious institutions. And so our, our training and, you know, uh, all, all four of us had, had done theological education, which we all valued uh, deeply, but our institutions really didn't have much to say to us about what it was we were discerning a, a work that was different from being a pastor or different from being a chaplain. Fortunately, we, once we said yes to each other, it's kind of how sometimes how things work. Once we said yes to each other, we started meeting other strange birds. Right. And those folks were just as grateful as we were to meet, to, you know, for us to meet up. And uh, early on, one of our very first Simpara events was called a Gathering of Strange Birds, uh, a retreat in Green Lake, Wisconsin. And just to name that part of our identity was healing for the pain and the loneliness we had experienced up to that point. Uh, it was encouraging that we had kindred spirits. And it was a blessing in that we could say, this path that we're charting here together is worthy. And we can give our lives to it because we're not alone. We're, we've got friends who will travel with us. So the practices of Simpar, I mentioned daily prayer, uh, a common reading. We have a monthly virtual gathering. It's always been virtual. Early on in 2003, it was, uh, you know, whatever free teleconferencing system we could. Then right, right. the, the technology, of course, uh, opened up. And so over time, it became video conferencing. So that's a monthly gathering. We call that First Friday. 
And one of our members who is a um, spiritual counselor and a retreat facilitator, she leads our first Friday gathering. And that's open to anyone. And so we have members of the core community of Sampara who participate that in that and other friends who join us as their schedules permit. That's been a lifeline for all of us. I, I consider that to be my primary spiritual community. I think that's true for, for others who are part of it. And our desire is to grow that community over time and to create alongside the virtual community to create physical communities here and there across the country. So that's what will bring us to placemaking, that third category of our work. We will discern in some of this work with congregations and religious institutions around the country that this opportunity or this one may be the place that really beckons to us, that we would like to plant some roots here and create what uh, in the monastic world they would call a foundation, to build a new community either alongside an existing congregation or in a space uh, that has been closed. And now we have the opportunity to repurpose it for, for the common good. There's so much I'm curious about. Would it be okay to dive into some of the, the practices that have supported you and, and just some of the actual... I'm always curious about how these kind of really formative groups function for folks. and mm-hmm. Part of some that have functioned well and been part of some that have functioned less well or kind of have fall into the wayside over time. And I'd be curious to learn more about how you, I guess, brought in new folks over time and brought them into the fold and kind of Mm -hmm. integrated them with the existing community and how kind of accountability and around these practices has has really happened over the long haul when you guys have all been distributed and, and remote. Yeah, yeah, those are great questions. I'll say a couple things first off just about structure a question that anyone who's creating communities is is going to spend some time on. We decided early on that we would say yes to these common practices uh, that I mentioned, and we would hold our life together lightly. So there's a bit of tension there, you know, that we're saying yes to practices and we want to be held accountable to that. And we're going to hold this experience lightly. And I I believe that the reason for that desire to hold it lightly was a reaction to uh, some of the some of the religious communities that we had grown up in, institutions that we had engaged in or were coming out of, and we recognized that we needed to to just trust the journey into whatever we were becoming, rather than try to uh, impose too much structure or order on that. We were helped in this right at the time that we were organizing Simpara back in 2003. uh, Several of us were reading the work of Margaret Wheatley, a systems thinker, organizational management theorist. And she introduced us to uh, the way in which living systems self-organize and the order and the design, as she puts it, that we get for free in a self-organizing world. So her work was an invitation to us just to trust, trust those kinds of processes, trust what brought us together, and trust that structures would emerge over time as we said yes to each other. And and that's what's happened. Take, for example, our monthly uh, ritual, First Friday, 
for those of us who have grown up in very structured religious communities, Sampara's First Friday can feel, at least initially, somewhat loose in that there's really just three pieces to it. And it, it, uh, it kind of moves at its own rhythm. There's a, there's a check-in. There's, uh, secondly, a reading. And then third, a kind of communal sharing that comes out of that reading. Uh, the facilitator might ask us a question to take into the reading. And then coming out of the reading, there's that third, third phase of sharing. And we never know where that's going to lead. But we trust the hour that we spend together. We trust each other. We trust that structure that emerges as we kind of self-organize in that moment. And inevitably, something transpires that just surprises us and delights us and gives us just what we need for that day to continue the journey. So I struggled with that early on. I knew intellectually uh, from reading Margaret Wheatley and teaching eventually on those kinds of themes around self-organization. I got it, you know, that there was, uh, that we got designed for free, that chaos is not to be feared, but is actually the precondition for creativity. So I could say all of this, but as a J on the Myers-Briggs, I'm an INFJ. I like structure. I like, uh, I like some order. And so as the convener of this group, I was constantly invited uh, to keep trusting and to, uh, to let go, you know, and not, not to hold it so, so tightly. I think that's also part of why it took us a long time, many years, to discern this public mission. We didn't want to force anything on our community. I, as the leader of the community, was reluctant to push the community or to force something that we all weren't discerning together. So there was trust, again, was so important. Trust, trust in the community, and then trusting my own leadership in that. At a point at long into this discernment, one of the members of our community called me out and said, Daniel, you're our pastor. We need you to share with us what you're seeing, what vision is emerging in your heart. So there's this kind of mutual trusting, a dance that we kind of engage in as a community, holding the structure lightly, while also calling each other to the something more that we said at the very beginning that we wanted to give our lives to and that continued to animate our life together. That's something more. That's something more that we wanted to do in the world. Yeah, so those are some of the practices that helped us to get clear about our purpose over time and the ways in which we could be faithful to, to each other and to our own sense of uh, vocation in the world. Right, right. And I can, I can definitely resonate with that tension between wanting maybe an emerging vision and also really kind of wanting the community to play an active role in kind of creating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. Then I realize we only have a couple minutes left in, in uh, the time we kind of have blocked off. I, I just have one final question you about Simpara and kind of your current work. 
you know, I'm curious for folks who might be interested in exploring ways to work with religious communities or congregations to repurpose their space, whether they're nonprofits that are doing work in the kind of fields that you've mentioned or other kind of community projects that are, are looking for space and, and might be mission aligned or mission adjacent. How would you recommend folks kind of go about exploring that process and seeing if there might be, you know, collaboration potential with a congregation that is exploring some of these ideas? For starters, just build a relationship, reach out. You know, I mentioned that the clergy and the lay leaders in congregations uh, have a big question, and that is, and, th- and this is the question for those who are already, as I mentioned, on that journey toward kind of awareness of underutilized assets and a disconnect with the wider community. So their big question is, where's the energy going to come from to do this new thing on this, in this place? And so if an inquiry were to come from a nonprofit, a social entrepreneur, an individual who says, you know, we're interested in exploring with you how we might make use of some of your underutilized space here, I think generally that's going to be well received because it's, it's, it's an answer to the congregation's question about energy. I would start by just building a relationship with the leaders of that congregation letting them know of your interest. Become acquainted with the mission of that congregation and particularly how that mission is manifested in in the wider community or at least their aspirations to do that. And then as you pitch or propose a use of their space, you'll find opportunities to kind of align what you're doing with the values of that community. So that's where I would start. In fact, that is where I'm still, we've been starting now as we reach out to congregations around the country, recognizing that they have desire and they also have this big question. And so realizing that if we can bring partners together, uh, we can do incredible things in spaces that today are underutilized and available. For sure, for sure. Daniel, thank you so much for your time and for sharing a little bit more about Sampara. Yes. Interesting. I'm so glad to do it. Yeah. Thank you for the invitation, Casey. Happy to. And uh, if anyone listening is looking to find out more about Sampara and the work they're doing with congregations across the U.S. and, and virtually online, check out Sampara.org. Is that right? S-Y-M. Right. That's right. Perfect. Yep. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks again, Daniel. Okay. Thank you, Casey. Thanks for listening to this conversation from the OpenDiv Summit. For more, check us out at summit.opendiv.org.